Before I get on with today's appeal, I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every listener. The growth of this podcast is amazing to watch, and it gives me real hope that these appeals could help to get a murderer off the streets and behind bars. If you could help spread the word by leaving a review or rating on your usual podcast source, it will help get this heard by more people. I would be extremely grateful for any and all reviews left. I've also made a few changes to the recording setup, which has improved the recording quality quite a bit. The final thing before I get on. If you have a suggestion for a case that you think needs covering, and all unsolved murders need covering, please get in touch via Facebook. Thank you everyone. Keep sharing the links. Still at large, unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 3, Episode 5 Natalie Jane Pierman, 20th of November 1992 1992 seems such a long time ago these days. Charles and Eddie were topping the charts with their falsetto filled soul and disco classic, Would I Lie to You? The Church of England voted to allow women to become priests, and the Hoxney hoard of late Roman gold and silver was discovered by a metal detectorist in Suffolk. But the most controversial news for the week beginning the 16th of November, 1992, was the High Court decision to allow the disconnection of feeding tubes to 21-year-old Tony Bland, who had been in a coma since the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. Such ethical debates around euthanasia and withdrawal of care often spark a lot of national introspection and discussion. When Tony Bland passed away, he became the 96th victim of the needless and avoidable crush during a football game in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. By mid-morning of the 20th of November, almost all coverage was washed away by the news that Windsor Castle, the oldest inhabited castle in the world, was on fire. The national news agencies focused all of their attention on the burning royal residence, so the death of a 16-year-old street girl with a troubled recent history was virtually ignored. Her killer is yet to be brought to book over her murder. There is a sad familiarity about the circumstances of today's case. A young woman falls prey to horribly exploitative men who kept her pumped full of drugs and put her on the streets to keep their pockets lined with cash and her veins full of drugs. 
What is significantly different about this case is that at the time of her senseless murder, Natalie Jane Pierman was just 16 years old. Legally, she was still a minor. The age of consent for lawful sexual activity in the United Kingdom is 16. In 1992, that was the case for heterosexual couples, whilst the age of consent for homosexual activity was still at 21. Although that isn't important to this case, just context. Given that by the time Natalie's life was so tragically taken by a stranger in the night, she had already been working as a prostitute since before she was of the legal age of consent. It appears that she had fallen into the hands of a group of predators. Let's go back a bit and find out who Natalie Jane Pierman was before we get to look at the sad events surrounding her demise. Natalie Jane Pierman made her entrance to the world on Christmas Day 1975 and was warmly received into a loving home. She was fortunate enough to be in a home where her parents and siblings all cared deeply about one another. As she grew up, she took up ballet and had a horse, and the family home in Cowper Close, a cul-de-sac off Northfield Road, Mundersley on the North Norfolk coast, was identical to millions of others in a myriad of suburban and rural towns across the UK. Comfortable homes in a variety of styles from bungalows to extended two-storey homes with the usual smattering of neat and slightly unkept gardens in a small close. It looks peaceful and unhurried there. Everything was going well, until the marriage of mum and dad broke up. The timings were awful, from a biological point of view for Natalie. By the time her hormones kicked in fully, Mum had met the man who was to become her stepdad and the family all began to live as a new family unit. For children, this can be a very confusing time. Their parents, who had been together all the time and were the centre of the family, suddenly, from the children's point of view, take another person and go their separate ways. It's a major change. However, sometimes it's for the best. The excuse of staying together for the sake of the children is a terrible decision. Children can tell if there is no love or veiled hostility between parents. If there's domestic violence, usually but not always, from the man against the woman, then there is help available to get you away from that situation. Deciding to stay in the home with a violent and unpredictable man capable of violence against a woman is the wrong decision. Your children will grow up to have dysfunctional relationships and will grow to resent you for leaving them in the path of harm. Even if the violence isn't directed at the children, the noise and spectacle, injuries and damage will be obvious and will damage the children. If you're a violent man in a relationship towards a woman, go and get help. Anger management can radically improve your life and the rest of your family. With all of that said, there is no evidence of any psychological, sexual or physical violence within either the original family home or the new family unit. It seems there was a series of sad events that aligned to create a dreadful storm for Natalie. There are a lot of small towns all around our island nation 
Those huddled near to the coast suffer from the twin blights of seasonal trade and exposure to the worst of the weather. The teens who live in these areas are often caught in an even worse situation than their urban counterparts. Out of the tourist season, there's almost nothing for them to do. Memberships of groups such as the Scouts, Guides or Adventure Scouts or any of the Military Cadet Corps aren't for everyone. And with ready access to the beaches, nighttime often becomes the time for the local youth to gather on the beach, have small bonfires, drink cheap dog rough or cooking alcohol and smoke cannabis. These things, whilst being less than ideal activities, aren't exactly the end of the world. I'm sure that many of the listeners all over the world have similar experiences and have gone on to be normal and productive adults. I know that a lot of the girls and boys that I shared my delinquent years with have gone on to achieve much. Some, however, have struggled. It seems likely that Natalie had been more affected by the divorce of her birth parents than was realised. It knocked her confidence and the pillars of alcohol, cannabis and casual sex made her feel like she had regained some of the confidence her hormonal and family changes wrought. It seems that the combination of normal teenage rebellion, hormonal changes due to puberty, emotional disturbances in her home life, the solace and comfort in intoxication and the ready if somewhat meaningless sense of intimacy she could achieve from casual sex soon began to cause real problems for Natalie. A middling student academically, her schoolwork began to suffer and home seems to have become a battleground between Natalie and her parents. Eventually, the situation deteriorated to the point where the decision was made to put Natalie in care. She was 14 at the time. If we think back over everything I've laid out, it becomes obvious that Natalie was being exploited by those around her, and the sudden perceived sense of emotional rejection from her family caused her derailing train to explode into a mess of vulnerability beneath a veneer of strength and rebellion. The drinking and drug taking continued, and the drugs became more addictive and the sex became more frequent. Remember, she was 14 when she was sent into the care system. There have been many criticisms of the care industry over the years, and the care system in the UK suffers from the usual plagues of underfunding, failing infrastructure, teenagers and predators aware of the vulnerability of the children. And they are children regardless of how disruptive and damaged they are. Natalie found herself, although she might have been unaware of it, in the grips of men who kept her plied with drugs and drink and eventually turned her out onto the streets. Although I suspect that, as in the case of various grooming gangs from Rochdale to Oxford and beyond, there was more than one male involved in her troubles. The scale of fending against children, and this is the story of sexual offences against a child, in the United Kingdom, is horrifying. One of the reasons that this seems to be a new epidemic facing the country is the reclassification of certain types of offence which, in the past, placed an amount of responsibility onto the victim. A lot of what would be called child abuse in today's more enlightened world was framed as incest. This label prevented many of the victims from coming forward. 
but as definitions have changed and greater awareness of the way abuse happens, the language has shifted to a more understanding and sympathetic tone towards the victims, which has in turn led to an increase of people coming forward. There are still problems with what constitutes child sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation at least according to the Centre of Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse at the London Metropolitan University. There, measuring the scale and changing nature of child sexual abuse and child exploitation scoping report by Professor Liz Kelly and Karika Karshner, drew together the various statistics available to produce an alarming picture of the scale of the problem. One key point that their study illustrates is the problem with properly assessing the level of abuse. There are three main sources that publish figures of the scale of child abuse and or sexual exploitation. The Office of the Children's Commissioner, Children's Services in England via the Department of Education and Police Recorded Crime via the National Police Chiefs Council. In 2015, the OCCI had identified 49,000 673 victims, of whom 73% were female, with most offences happening after the age of 13. Children's services in England have 2,260 children on child protection plans, of whom 61% are female, who are mainly between the ages of 10 to 16 years. In the police recorded crime figures for sexual exploitation only, there are 8,000 995 victims of or at risk of child sexual exploitation of whom 88% are female and who have an average age of 14. The offender profiles the three different agencies offer up are quite revealing. OCCI figures list 34,241 perpetrators who have been identified with 67% of those being over the age of 18. The Ministry of Justice has listed 9,270 defendants, with 98% being male, and 94% of those being over 18. And the recorded child sexual exploitation offenders in the police recorded crime figures show 6,107 child sexual exploitation offenders. 93% of whom are male, with an average age of 26, with offenders predominantly being white, although they note with some concern that 18% of offenders do not have their ethnicities listed. But even if that 18% were added on to any of the other groups, black, Asian and other, the total would still, overwhelmingly, be white. Natalie's sudden rebellion and chaotic change to her life led to her being branded a wild child. This is a tasteless and insensitive euphemism that conjures up everything from minor delinquency to the highly romanticised version of bright lights and champagne socialites tottering on their high heels out of nightclubs to be fodder for the paparazzi. But the reality was that Natalie had gone from being a teenager who went to beach bonfires with a few people smoking joints and drinking Lambrusco, or whatever cheap grog the kids could get their hands on, to being used for sex, addicted to hard drugs, and then turned to street prostitution to support her habit.
The time Natalie spent in care was relatively brief, and the details about what happened to her are quite sparse. But she briefly returned home. The lively, interested and intelligent girl who wanted, at one time, to join the RAF and travel the world had been replaced by a girl who had been abused and made to feel that the abuse was normal and that she was a willing conspirator in her continuing abuse. There was never any suspicion or suggestion of the sexual abuse starting at home, but the boredom that winter in seaside town creates when everything is closed and the place is all but abandoned did play a complementary part in her attraction to the perceived excitement of the money and intoxication prostitution and drugs bought. It's highly likely that she would have felt that having the money and freedom to stay out late and indulge in whatever pills, powders or plants were available would have made her feel very mature. When we consider that before 16, Natalie was under the age of consent for sexual activity and that she looked quite young, it's highly likely that the men who were picking her up were picking her up because she looked young and was underage. These men, because there are always more it seems, are probably rationalising their abhorrent behaviour with the comfortable lies that the girl knew the score or that I didn't know that she was underage. But if you're cruising around a red light zone in the late evening or early hours of the morning picking up young women who look underage, there's a very high chance that they know exactly what they're doing. Natalie was in the grip of abusive men and what many would class as paedophiles. A quick word on paedophilia. In general, in the UK at least, the term is used by the press and general population to mean something different from the technical psychological and clinical definition. Clinically, the term refers to people who have a sexual focus and interest in children who are past infanthood and whom are prepubescent between 5 and 11 is the accepted parameters. Those individuals who have an exclusive sexual preference towards mid to late adolescence in the classifications of chronophilia, age-related sexual attraction, ephebophiles. A sexual attraction to adolescence isn't that unusual, nor, if the truth be told, an offence if the person is over the age of sexual consent and the relationship is fully consensual, and there is no exploitation of the younger party. As uncomfortable as it seems, there are cases where a late 40s man is in a serious committed relationship with a younger woman of the age of 16 or 17. But even in those cases, there remains a question about coercion and grooming. This wasn't the case for poor Natalie, however. The men surrounding her saw her vulnerability as a way to get sex from a young woman and the drugs ensured she had no escape route. That was how Natalie came to be on Ruin Road at 1am on the morning she died. There are various reports of her having at least two clients that night, although I dislike the term in the present sense. It also isn't clear that there had been any protection used in those instances. At a quarter past one, Natalie was last seen by an acquaintance on the Ruin Road, and this is believed to have been the last known sighting before she fell into the hands of the man who would kill her.
As with a lot of street girls, Natalie was known to work under a few names. Her own, Maria and Vicky. It's understandable that having a name, a whole identity essentially, which can be disposed of when needed to stop any link to her real life from becoming apparent. The original appeal poster, with the seemingly amateurish composition of text and a cut-out image of Natalie in the clothes she was last seen, and sadly found wearing, were distributed around the Norwich Red Light District. I strongly feel that it should have been distributed much further afield too. It shows her wearing a black puffer jacket with a green lining and two large toggle pulls at the waist. She was wearing a pair of white or light coloured leggings with black or dark blue patches or squares on them. On her feet she wore black ankle boots with a chunky heel. I'm not an expert on ladies footwear but to my eye they look like Chelsea boots with a squarish heel which is about the size of those normally associated with what is referred to as clogs. It's unclear if they were polished or suede. The poster shows Natalie with her hair tucked in her coat around her neck and rather oddly it also shows her sucking her right index finger. I suspect that this could have been due to it being the only image that was available to police at the time. Shortly before 10 to 3 in the morning, a lorry driver found himself caught short and needed a pee. So he pulled into a lay-by at the Ringland Hills Woodland on the Ringland Road. It's about five miles from where Natalie was last seen. It's a popular spot with walkers, dog walkers, mountain bikers and other regular daytime activities in the countryside. But when night falls, Ringland Hills and the associated laybys and car parks become the habitats of cottagers and doggers. Cottaging has long been a part of the gay scene, since before decriminalisation and well into today's more permissive society. Even today, however, some men find themselves in a situation whereby they feel uncomfortable being able to be open to their own sexuality and use cottaging to have casual sex with strangers. There's probably more than a few who do it because they like meeting new and anonymous partners. Dogging is a relatively new arrival on the paraphilia list. For those not aware, it involves heterosexual couples performing sexual acts for the voyeuristic pleasure of strangers, with a woman sometimes having multiple sexual partners with her partner's or husband's approval and encouragement. This is done in car parks and discreet locations accessible by road. If it's all consensual, completely consensual, then I fail to see the problem with it. But there are obvious boundaries that cannot be crossed. Because there is a stigma attached to both of these activities, there may have been some instances where cases such as this have hit a wall of silence to police because of the public decency laws that are being broken during the acts, as well as the opprobrium of friends, family and their wider community. I feel this might play a part in this story too. The lorry driver, who was on his way to work, had stopped to urinate when he discovered Natalie in a ditch by the side of the road. Her leggings and underwear had been pulled down and she was left face down in the November leaf litter, 
the life having been taken from her by asphyxiation, as her post-mortem would later reveal. I'm normally quite careful about describing whether the asphyxia was caused by manual strangulation, application of a ligature or garrote, or by some form of smothering by hand, cloth or plastic bag. This time, unfortunately, I can't be that accurate. This, I think, is quite telling, as it might contain a signature behaviour that police would like to keep to themselves at this time. Semen was found both inside of Natalie and in her undergarments, which is where the question about the use of protection with her previous customers arises. The semen found may or may not be from the man responsible for her death. There is little information available as to whether her site of deposition and murder are the same or that she was murdered elsewhere and placed there later. It's normal, even in cases where the police have specific information they do not want to release, for such details to be released. There are a number of signs that a body has been left in one position before deposition that is different from the deposition scene. The most telling sign is called post-mortem lividity and forms surprisingly quickly after death. Essentially, the blood in the victim pools in the lowest parts of the body, staining the skin from within and looking somewhat like a purple bruise. Post-mortem liver is a key factor for establishing a best estimate for time of death. Time of death is only ever an estimate and despite what Hollywood would have you believe, it can never be identified with a degree of precision. Onset of post-mortem lividity begins within 30 minutes of the heart stopping and develops over the next two to four hours. The appearance is very similar to bruising, but unlike bruising, where the tissue beneath the skin shows signs of trauma, post-mortem lividity only affects the skin and any pressure on the capillaries in the dermis and epidermis will result in a blanched or unstained area at that compression point. This is often a key marker for investigators to assess whether the body has been moved after the lividity set in and became fixed, or the body was in its, as it were, proper position for the time of death. Given that there's no official discussion about Natalie being moved after her death, it seems likely that the lay-by where she was found was the place where she lost her life. We don't know an awful lot about her actual death, besides that there was an element of asphyxia involved. Doubtless, some of you will be thinking about the Ipswich Strangler, a serial killer of young women working as prostitutes, Stephen Wright. Wright is serving a whole life tariff for the murder of five young women in a few weeks back in late 2006. Between the 30th of October and the 9th of December 2006, Wright asphyxiated women working the red light district in Ipswich. He had been the landlord of a pub in the heart of the area and had his accommodation there. He was a regular user of prostitutes and often brought them back to his home. He would, given his habit of strangling or suffocating his victims, be the prime suspect. But the DNA recovered from Natalie tells us that Wright had no part in her killing. The same can be said for multiple murderer Christopher Halliwell, another sex worker killer, although his last victim was not a streetwalker. In fact, any name that had been associated with the murder of young women 
who was active and at large in 1992, can be ruled out. The DNA profile has been run through the system and entered as a file for comparison with any later samples. But to date, this has yet to produce a match. Here's cold case manager, Andy Guy, from Norfolk Constabulary. This case is all about DNA. So we have a full DNA profile of the man that I believe murdered Natalie Beerman. It's just a simple matter of if we were given the information, it's a very simple step for us to check the DNA of that person and to see whether we have a match or not. It really is that straightforward. My own personal view is there are, there are people in Norfolk that know who the offender was, who killed Natalie, and maybe out of a law, sense of loyalty they haven't told me, maybe they've just not wanted to for whatever reasons. There is people who are listening or reading um, that, that know or suspect who is responsible, and it may not be that they have direct information, but they may have been told something, they may have suspected somebody at the time in 1992. And going back to 1992, this was the, the, um, the day that Windsor Castle caught fire, it was just after Norwich had been top of the Premiership and were beaten 7-1 by Blackburn. So to put it into context, you know, anybody over sort of 40 years old would probably remember this. Well, Nat Natalie's family, um, her mum and her sister, have a point of contact um, from, from us uh, and that officer is in regular contact with them. It's a quarter of a century now and I think they've had some highs and lows over that time. So, you know, they're, they, they're good enough to let us do what we think is the right thing. But of course, you know, 25 years of the roller coaster ride they've been on is fairly unimaginable. Well, I think any parent um, listening to this would realise that, you know, to, to lose a 16-year-old daughter, uh, and a 16-year-old is, is little more than the child. Natalie was a month short of her 17th birthday. You know, the impact of that is just uh, unrecoverable from. Um, and they're, they're her, her mum and her stepdad and her, her family have lived with this for 25 years. So the impact has been enormous on them, but like I've said, the opportunity to close this is still there. I did a similar appeal as what I'm doing today in, in five years ago, 19, uh, 2012. Um, there was some calls came in. A lot of that repeated information we knew, but there was new stuff that came in. Uh, in 2013, a man was arrested in connection with the murder of Natalie. It transpired that he wasn't responsible, but just to show that the, the inquiry is alive and his officers working on it all the time. There was a, a total review of um, 5,000 pieces of work. So the original inquiry was about 4,500 documents, messages, um, statements. Uh, I've personally been through every single one of those documents, and as a result of that, that's created another 600 pieces of work. And also we've DNA'd nearly 700 people since then. So I think 686 men have given the DNA because of interest in the inquiry. So that just shows the commitment we've, we've continued with. Names do come in inquiry from all different sources, Steve Wright being a, a, a typical example from the, the, the Suffolk murders uh, a few years ago. Um, we know it's not Steve Wright because the DNA is different and all the cases that are brought to our attention we will check with the relevant forces to see if there's similarities and see if forensic is the same. And we've continued to do that ever since I've had the case and of course there hasn't been a match. This raises some interesting questions. As his DNA hasn't been found at any other crime scene or in connection with any crime whereby a sample would be taken, we can be fairly sure that this was, as much as is possible to establish, an accident of sorts, a loss of control rather than a deliberate and planned offence. That doesn't mean that the killer should receive any sort of merit or acknowledgement for not killing anyone else, nor should that be taken into consideration when sentencing occurs.
because this case is solvable. But it gives the course of events leading up to him departing the scene some greater substance and narrative. The lack of familial DNA in the National DNA Database is also curious. Either he is a bachelor and has no relatives, or that he is a regular, run-of-the-mill family man surrounded by law-abiding relatives who would never consider that he would be capable of such a heartless act. If he is a family man, the question must be asked as to whether he has a daughter or daughters around the age of Natalie when she died. This dark thought must be a reality when considering a case like this. It lacks any real defining pattern or shape. A young girl, a child, is picked up off the street, taken to a secluded spot. The sex act is undertaken, and then at the end of that, he loses control due to a rush of guilt or disgust at himself with having improper thoughts about his own children to the point where he finds a surrogate to release his sexual frustrations and needs to eradicate her from possibly identifying him. In a rush, he smothers her with his hand until she's dead and then leaves her, unconcealed in a busy lay-by, despite its rural location, and returns home to try and act normally. There's a difficulty with that, however. The semen that was found with Natalie was found internally and on her underwear, which, along with her leggings, was pulled down. This could be taken to indicate that the semen left doesn't belong to her murderer at all and that it might have come from a previous customer. Was the semen from another man the cause of the sudden rage that saw her life being taken? The method of asphyxia isn't clear at all. One would suspect that if Natalie had been suffocated with a cloth or the car seat that there might have been fibre traces found in the moist areas of the face, the nose, mouth, eyes and respiratory passages. But it seems that nothing like that has been found, leaving us with only plastic bags or a similar non-fibrous material, or the killer's hand over her mouth and nose. Was this an attempt to silence her screaming or silence her from talking? Did she know her killer? Was she familiar with him due to some other engagement? school or care home? Was that the danger point? Did he work with vulnerable children? What of the killer? Was he the sort of man who could kill and carry on with life as normal? Or was there a sudden and abrupt change in his behaviour at home? Had he developed a habit of going for a drive in the evening because he couldn't sleep and didn't want to wake up his wife? thereby creating a normal behaviour that would mask his actual intentions. Did that stop in late November 1992? Did your husband or father appear to be very distracted or agitated in the weeks following the murder? Was he always highly verbally critical of prostitutes? As a wife, did you notice something that was a red flag, but you gave him the benefit of the doubt because it seemed so out of character with the man you know and love? Was his relationship with his daughter or daughters particularly fraught at this time? Did that suddenly seem to stop? Was your husband even more loving than normal? Was he obsequiously attentive for a period? Did he refuse to go out? 
There are so many questions that someone close to the killer has the answers to. Even if this was a one-off moment, a loss of control, and no doubt he'll claim that in his defence, and that he's been a good father and husband for everything else, that is no reason for protecting a man who killed a child and left her in a ditch in the cold winter night. Police made extensive inquiries about her murder, so much so that by the time Detective Chief Inspector Andy Guy made another appeal in 2012, some 4,000 people had been interviewed and thousands of men had given DNA samples for testing, all without success. The last appeal drew some fresh information, but not enough to advance the case further. Some 20 calls and emails were received, so it's still in people's minds. Sadly, these new pieces of information led to nothing, but police still believe that there is someone in the Norwich area who knows what happened that night. The police suspect that a partner either knows about it because it was admitted to by the husband or boyfriend, and that that woman is protecting him out of a misplaced sense of marital duty, or that she has been threatened into silence by him. The person might also be protected by a member of his family. A parent or sibling might know something, but for the sake of family, they're keeping quiet. This appeal, like all the other appeals, is to them. Please come forward. A troubled child lost her life that night and it's vitally important that her and her family get the justice they rightly deserve. Put aside all other loyalties and do what is right. Until that time, you are letting a murderer go free. Natalie's mother, Lynn, said in a 2012 interview with the Eastern Daily Press, quote, I want justice for my daughter. She was 16. She was trying to earn a living the only way she could manage and didn't want to be dependent on the state. She was trying to do her best to survive life. She didn't deserve what happened to her. I hope whoever feels they have a responsibility to others is going to feel guilty and forget about them and come forward. That's what I've been hoping all of these years. It just gets worse. They say that time heals, and it does to a certain extent, but you have to learn to live with what's happened. The name means nothing to me. What I need to know more than anything else is why she was killed. I just want to know why. It's the hardest thing. Had she some knowledge that they didn't want getting out? She certainly said nothing to me. End quote. The last word comes from Detective Chief Inspector Andy Guy. Quote, I think it's worth remembering that Natalie Pierman was only 16 years old when she died. She was nothing more than a kid. End quote. Anyone with information regarding Natalie's death is asked to contact the MIT Cold Case team on 01953. 424520 
or 101. Alternatively, call Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800-555-111. That's 0800-555-111. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. Still at Large is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Wooshka, Google Podcasts, Spotify and your usual podcast app. If you like the show, please leave a rating to help get these appeals seen by more people. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with conversations about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur media production.